Hi, I'm Jeff Russo, the composer from Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard, and you are currently listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week's episode is for you music lovers out there, as we're speaking with an award-winning composer who's made scores for some of your favorite television shows, movies, and video games. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Russo, the Emmy-winning and Grammy-nominated composer for Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. Jeff has won an Emmy along with two additional nominations for his score in FX's Fargo, and in addition to his two Trek shows, has scored Netflix's Altered Carbon and The Umbrella Academy, FX's Snowfall and Legion, Weeds, Crossing Jordan, Smash, and The Bionic Woman, along with films like Lucy in the Sky, Mile 22, Lizzie, and more. He's also received a BAFTA nomination for Best Music for Annapurna Interactive's video game, What Remains of Edith Finch. And if Jeff's name sounds familiar to you, well, you probably grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, because you might also remember him from the Grammy-nominated rock band Tonic and their hit single, If You Could Only See. Jeff's approach to music and his artistic process is a very fascinating one, and he's a man who speaks eloquently about his craft. Me, I can't tell the difference between an arpeggio and an approach, and I only learned what those two things are for this episode. But if you love listening to or making music of any kind, this episode is going to be especially informative and interesting to you. And one other note, I want to mention that we recorded this episode a day or so after the very first episode of Season 3 Discovery came out, so unfortunately I didn't know that a certain piece of music was going to end up being a little bit more important as the season went on. And with the way CBS is, and well really with most shows that haven't come out yet, Jeff couldn't really talk too much about what he did in Season 3, but we do get a few little tidbits of things here, so hopefully you can glean some interesting things off of that. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance, and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. 
whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. All right, and welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us all the way in lovely, beautiful California. Today, we're speaking to the composer of Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, and many other wonderful shows and films you've seen, I'm sure. And that is Mr. Jeff Russo. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well. Uh, lovely, beautiful California. I don't know. about. <laughs> <I> don't know. <laughs> it just depends on what part you're living in more so, but yeah. <laughs> I guess so. But enough about the weather. We're here to talk Trek as well as some other things you've worked on. Um, so let's just kick things off with the first question I like to ask all of my guests. And that's, uh, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? You know, my earliest, my I guess my earliest memory of Star Trek is watching the original series in um, syndication because I had a, a neighbor in my apartment building who uh, is about four or five years older than me. Um, and he was a, a big Trek fan early on in the seventies in New York. Cause I grew up in New York city. Um, and, uh, that's my earliest memory, you know, but I would say that that's not really my, where I got into star Trek. That was just my first memories of it. Like being in his, I was really dear friends with his sister. Um, so when I would ever go to their apartment, he would be watching star Trek and I would be, you know, playing with, various <laughs> various toys um <laughs> not, uh, not related to that so that, i guess that's my my initial my initial response to that is that's my earliest memories of star trek like hearing the sounds of of the um of the doors opening and closing and tricorder sounds like hearing those sounds from the other room i would say that's my first real memory of anything really star trek related so you mentioned that you grew up in New York, and uh, I'm curious just to get a little bit more background information about you. Uh, can you tell us where you grew up, who your parents were, and what you wanted to be when you grew up? <laughs> um, my, my, you know, I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, and my, my father was an immigrant, um, and my mother was born in the Bronx, I think, um, and what did I want to be when I grew up? I, I, I you know, really young. I, th I think I had all of the, the, all of those things that youngsters have. I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be all these things, you know, um, it wasn't, and I, my, my mom had me sort of playing music when I, when I was young, when I was in the fourth grade, I had to play, pick an instrument. So I picked a violin and I hated that. And then in the fifth grade, I played, what did I play in the fifth grade? I played clarinet in the fifth grade. Um, in the sixth grade, I started playing percussion. And that's when I sort of really started to find music. But it, it wasn't until much later, um, you know, when I had gone into high school that I really sort of decided that I wanted to make music. And that was the thing that I wanted to do. Um, and then at that point, it was really more about wanting to be in a rock band and wanting to be like Jimmy Page or, or Dave Gilmour. Um, and be a guitar player in a rock band, you know. And that's definitely something that you did do because if we're going to jump ahead a little bit because you were in a band called Tonic. You guys were Grammy nominated. Uh, your music was used all over the place. The videos on YouTube, I don't know if you're aware, have like millions upon millions of views, which is amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about Tonic, what you remember about Tonic? And I mean, you guys exploded. Yeah, you know, we... I started the band with the singer um, back in the early 90s, 92. And 
it was something that I had wanted to do my whole my whole childhood. I wanted to be a I wanted to be a rock musician. I wanted to be a rock star, you know, and tour around the world and make records. And and you know, we we started a band with that thought, and we we worked at it. We wrote songs, and we we got in a van and toured around, and then you know, eventually sort of made some traction and got a record deal and made an album and then put it out, and then people liked a couple of those songs around the radio and, and we kept touring and it sort of built and built and built. Um, and you know, that's not something that you ever expect to live that part of your childhood dreams. Um, but it was, it was really, it was really a fun, fun time, you know, and, and those, those, I still play with the band. We still do shows every now and again. And, and, um, in the summertime and on weekends and occasionally they do tours you know, I, I'm not able to play with it as much as I have in the past because I've you know, obviously taken a, a whole new, um, a whole new direction in my, um, in my, in my career. So I, it's, it's a little hard to describe that feeling, you know, that feeling of uh, not being able to participate in, in a, a lot of that now, although I, I do still do some um, it is, uh, it's not as it's not as frequent as it has been in the past, but you know that that's that's um, that's what happens. I think. Do you have any on the road stories you can share with us? Any any saucy parties or any interesting celebrity moments like that? <sighs> you know, there's a lot of those. There's always a lot of those. Um, they, they're not they're not terribly interesting. Um, they're they're not terribly. I don't know that I, I would consider them to be in a whole nother lifetime. You know that that was some, that was something that, um, I experienced and it was a lot of fun and it really did shape, you know, me as a musician and a writer and as a person, I think. Um, but I would say that like one of the funniest parts of this is, you know, when I was, um, when I was a late teenager in the late eighties, when the, the next generation came out, that was when I became a really big fan of, of, um, Star Trek and, I used to watch, you know, religiously. And then we, we got a record deal and started going on the road. And, um, I started taping, um, the, the episodes and watching them on the bus on on our tour bus, you know, to the point where, you know, when, when I I got the job writing for for discovery, I got a, a call from the singer and he was like, I can't believe this. This is, it's, it's like this, the dream is coming true. You know, um, I, I don't know that back then that I, I don't know that I was dreaming of writing the music for Trek, but I was so engrossed in the world and so loved the rich, the rich narrative and the, and the depth of the characters and the depth of the stories, um, that, you know, I wanted to, I, I would, I would at that point have loved to have done anything uh, involved with Star Trek. And if I could go back in time and say to my 25 year old self, um, 24 year old self, Hey, you, you're gonna, you're gonna write the music and the themes for Star Trek 30 years from 25 years from now. <laughs> um, I, I would have said, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, and, uh, so that's, that's sort of the dovetailing of those worlds in that way is very, is a lot more interesting to me than any of the sort of rock and roll stories. I mean, of which there were many, you know, many, you know, 
staying up all night and partying and, you know, sleeping on the bus and waking up in the next town and doing shows. And, you know, one of the things that you don't really uh, think about um, or people don't really think about is there's no real central home. You know, like I spent years on the road without, without feeling like I really had a home and that, that can be very, um, can be very disconcerting. You know, it can be very sort of, it shakes you to your core, which is, I think why I, at some point was like, I really don't want to do that anymore. I really don't want to tour and be away um, from a sort of stable place, you know? Yeah. I like the way that you put that, that when you were in the rock band, that basically was another life from where you're at today. So can you kind of tell us how you essentially transitioned from one life to another? How did you go from being rock star to composer? I, you know, that's that's a really it's a really interesting question and and I I didn't know what I wanted to do and in about 2004 2005 you know we decided to take a bit of a break from the band and Emerson the singer sort of did what singers do which is he wanted to go make a solo album and I I thought about doing that I thought about you know writing songs and I did write some songs started recording some things but it just didn't feel right to me. It just didn't feel like that's really where I wanted to be. So I have a really dear friend. Her name is Wendy Melvoin. And she was in the duo Wendy and Lisa. They were in Prince's band. And they were working on a show called Heroes at the time. And another show called Crossing Jordan. And I remember Wendy asked me, she was like, you know, you should come and just sit in our studio and, and check out what we do. Like, why not just come hang out? And check out what we do and maybe, you know, something might strike you. So I went and I hung out at their studio for, you know, it, I started on one day and all of a sudden it was three months later. I'd been going in every day and, and watching them do what they do and listening to how they worked. And um, at some point, Wendy was like, hey, do you want to try your hand at writing a cue? You know, like a 30 second piece of music or a minute long piece of music or whatever. And I, I said, sure. And I did. And it worked out really well. And, and in the end, they, they had me, they had me writing some additional music for them on crossing Jordan. Um, and that was sort of my, my endpoint to becoming someone who would be writing music for um, storytelling, you know, for narrative media and, that was that was really how I got into it. That that I, I don't know that that's how it blossomed into where I'm at today. But you know, without that moment, I I don't think I would have ever found the um, the desire. You know, I had always been interested in in film music. You know, I'd al always been interested in um, the way music can affect a storytelling um, and and been interested in wanting to try to do that. Um, but I just never had the opportunity, nor did I really have the understanding of how to go about doing it. Um, and that sort of provided that for me. And then it was just a question of like figuring out how to move forward in that. And, um, you know, eventually did. So you mentioned that at a young age, you were exposed to a lot of classical instruments. Uh, and then you also just mentioned right now, that you like listening to film soundtracks and film scores. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, if you're aware of what you did either subconsciously or consciously, uh, what you did to really expand your musical vocabulary to prepare you for uh, this new career. I don't know. I don't know that there was anything I did to prepare me to prepare myself. Like I, I kind of feel like, you know, I just jumped in and started 
doing it. And the thing that I learned from Wendy and Lisa and being in their studio was like what the technical aspect of it was. Um, and then it was just a question of applying my knowledge of music. You know, I, I'm self-taught, so I, I, I don't really have any formal training at anything. You know, I took a couple <laughs> lessons of violin in the fourth grade, you know, but I was never, you know, I, I, I learned how to, I learned how to play music watching Lenny Kravitz play. I was, I, when I was 17 years old, a good friend of mine who I had been in a band with in high school, like he was friends with Lenny and we, we all hung out. And I remember watching Lenny make records and that's really how I learned how to play any instruments. Like I, I learned how to play, I taught myself how to play guitar. I put, you know, I'd been playing drums for years, but then watching him play and bass and then guitar, uh, uh, keyboards and stuff, you know, the, so for me, the learning of, of playing instruments, um, and understanding music came from just the experience, um, and not really, you know, studying, studying it. And, then when it came to writing orchestral music, which is what I, I guess I tend to do a lot of now, you know, that was, that was like, a, a you know, just out of the, you know, out of the pan and into the fire, you know, just kind of do it. When, when I got hired um, to do the score for Fargo, the first season of Fargo, because I had been working with that filmmaker, um, Noah Hawley, on a number of projects prior to that, you know, he, he called me and he said, so we're going to do a big orchestral score for this because we want it to sound like, you know, want it to sound like a movie, which is, you know, what we're doing. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. And I was terrified because I was like, I've never written a, an orchestral score. Um, so I, I read some books and I, I, um, you know, I figured if I can write a melody and I understand harmony, why can't I just put those melodies and harmonies on different instruments in the orchestra? And I don't really know much about or didn't really know much about the uh, the um, art of orchestration. So sometimes I'd be like, oh, you know, that's instrument. And then, you know, the person who was putting it all on paper, the orchestra would be like, you know, you really can't, if you put this note on this instrument with this note on this instrument, it kind of feels a little muddy. So maybe we move this to another instrument. And I was like, oh, and you start to learn all of that stuff moving forward. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's sort of how it all sort of happened. You know, it, it was all very, um, it was all very grassrootsy. You know, I, I, I didn't really make, um, specific decisions to try to do any specific things that the opportunities presented themselves and I just had to do them. Um, and as, as job after job started to, to come in and, and things started to be more orchestral and more of this and more of that, you know, you just sort of learn the things that you need to learn in order to do what you need to do. So I'm glad you mentioned Fargo because I did want to actually talk to you about that. Uh, that's one of the shows that you won an Emmy for. You were nominated for, uh, I believe, two other Emmys uh, in addition to the one you won. You know, Fargo, to me, it has this very enigmatic, creepy, rising tension in almost all the, the songs that are on it. But it's also very much distinctly Midwestern sounding or what I imagine the Midwest to sound and feel like. Uh, it's a very complex score with a lot of cinematic qualities to it. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your take on the process to compose the sound of Fargo. Well, you know, every, every season is different. You know, one of the rules we have, and this rule for better or for worse came up with in the first season is no themes travel from one season to the next. Um, 
And of course, there are slight exceptions. The, the main exception is the main theme that I wrote for the um, for the show, which gets played all the time. Um, and then there's also this bad guy theme, which started on drum kit in the first season um, and then morphed into drum line in the second season and then back to drum kit in the third season. And then, you know, I'm not going to reveal what happens in this season that's currently airing. What I wanted to do is I wanted to find a voice for the show that was distinctly us and yet still connected us to the movies. So I didn't want to utilize Carter's material, but I wanted to stay sort of in the same world while creating our own identity. It was it was a tall order. It's still it it continues to be a tall order because every year we sort of have to reinvent what it means to be musical in this in this landscape. Um, And yet all still keeping it the same feeling. So it's, it's difficult to describe what the process is. I mean, I sit down and, and now that I'm working on season four, it's like, as I write new material for it and I know what I'm writing, I know what I'm writing for anyway, it just sort of comes out. It just sort of spills out in that very Fargo way. I tend to write certain types of chord changes and certain types of melodies and rhythms over those chord changes. Um, and they, they all sort of still continue to sound Fargo to me. So there's, there's no real one way to go about it. It's really just a question of you know, I read the scripts and I, I really get into the feeling of this, of, of each season and then try to find those, um, find those melodic and motific moments that will really underscore the, the story, you know, the sounds themselves, like the sound of the score, I think has already found itself. It found itself, I think, in season one, and then it has developed over over the seasons, but it, it really does stay on in the same lane. Hearing all that discussion there, uh, I just had a thought right now, and I'm curious to get your opinion on it. You know, hearing how you're talking about music, it seems like the way you approach music, it's it's both intuitive and emotive, but on the other hand, it, it is a, a mathematical and, and a calculated thing. Uh, what do you think about that statement? I, I don't look at I, I don't look at music as having any rules. So there is a sound of having to decide what to do, but I try not to look at it in, in a mathematical way. I mean, there is a certain amount of math and calculation involved in making music to be in specific places, but I still try to leave that behind. Um, and I still try to let music be as human as possible. Um, as opposed to being calculated and as opposed to being um, thought about in that way. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I try to do the opposite of that. I try to actually allow it to have its own life and decisions I make. I try not to make those decisions based on any sort of formulaic method. I can definitely see that. I think that the music you make does have its own life and all of it does have its own individual energy. There's, you know, clearly if you jump from piece to piece, it you, you know it's a Jeff Russo piece once you've heard enough of Jeff Russo's work, but it all sounds individual. It all has its own spirit. So uh, I definitely do see that. Uh, and I guess since we're going to use the term spirit and throw around uh, life a little bit, let's talk about the afterlife because I also wanted to ask you a little about Lucifer, uh, which you composed with Ben Dector. You worked with him previously in Hostages, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think Lucifer has, again, just a very unique, uh, very cool sound to it. Um, and, you know, I imagine this is one of those shows that 
presents a, a lot of good combinations of the different music types that you're into and that you know of. Um, so I guess my question would be, you know, every show that you do, of course, presents its own unique challenges. Uh, but for a Lucifer, what were the challenges you had to deal with for that score? Well, you know, one of the one of the challenges was we we came in in season two. Yeah. Um, so you come in replacing other composers, which means there was something that you know, uh, you know, unless the the idea was to completely change the direction of the music, which I, I'm not sure, I, I'm pretty sure wasn't what the producers had said. You know, they they were like, look, you know, we we need to make a change, but we're not looking change the sound we just need to make it a little more of this or a little more of that so that was a challenging thing to begin with um secondly it is challenging in in um a number of ways you know tom's character lucifer is extremely um extremely gregarious right he's extremely big it's a bigger than life character um having to play that without sounding over the top is a challenge. You know, we, we really want to let the acting do, do what it needs to do and sort of stay out of the way and yet still have it be fun because it's a really fun show. Right. Yeah. One of the great, one of the great parts of doing that show is we get to do these cover songs with Tom singing. And that's, that's always a lot of fun to do as oh, well. Yeah. Um, so keeping all that in it, um, while while making it still sound, um, you know, cohesive, that's that is the challenge. Now, working in so many different genres of television and film, is there one that you prefer to work in more so than others? Well, you know, I always find myself happier. Happier is probably not the right word. I'm I usually find myself the most comfortable in a dramatic setting because I tend to want to write music that reflects what the characters are feeling not necessarily doing right so when you when you get to when you get to doing that when you get to playing music that is really based on the emotional context of of the of the narrative and really about what the characters are feeling inside as opposed to what they're doing that usually lends itself to a little more of a dramatic um musical underscore um so that's where i usually find myself um the most comfortable. Although, you know, I, I, you have to write music that reflects what's happening. Right. So when, so when, when you want it to be light and fun, it needs to be light and fun. I always find that type of music to be more complicated to write because writing music that's fun and, or or funny without sounding like you're trying to be happy, funny, or light is complicated because um, music can, can really detract from a scene if it's not done in the right way. Um, so it's always, it's always a, a task to try to do that, which is, you know, I always tend to want to choose one thing and let funny be funny and not try to help funny. You know, um, and also you want to let drama be drama or else you create melodrama, you know, with too much mm. music. So it's really it's it's a it's a very um, subtle and complex dance uh, that that you have to sort of um, be involved with in order to in order to get this right. So I would say I'm, I'm the most comfortable in the dramatic side, but tend to like to do pretty much any 
know, I, I, I would say that like when I'm when I'm faced with having to write comedy music, that's where I feel the most um, hobbled. You know, I'm I'm just not as um, I'm not as experienced in that. So it's a little harder for me. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. This is Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, soon to get a promotion to Captain on Lower Decks. Some of you may know me from my acting career, but a lot of you probably don't know me from my charity. It's called drivebydugaters.org. Myself and a bunch of teenage boys from the block, we all jump into my SUV every Sunday, and we drive to the outskirts of town, and right from the car window, we deliver water and wipes and protein and tarps and socks to our adult homeless who truly need it right now. I don't know if you know this, but in LA, there's not one single public bathroom and not one single water fountain for anyone. And out there in Skid Row, there's 11,000 people in 20 square blocks. So our water and our wipes are really needed. We go out every week and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or right on the website, drivebydugaters.org and throw in any amount, even a small amount is great. For instance, you can go on the website and when you click on donate, you can see where three bucks is going and what your money is going towards or where 17 bucks is going. Sometimes it's for cheese, sometimes it's for socks, sometimes it's for just what's really needed, which is water. Any holiday donations you might be deciding where to relegate, please consider drivebydugaters.org. It's also completely a tax write-off, and every little tiny, tiny bit helps, anywhere from $3 to $3 million. Your money goes directly to those who need it, and we have no overhead, no agenda, pure giving, and stay tuned for the animated version of Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks, coming soon. Drivebydugaters.org, we drive by, and what we do? what do we do? We do good. Thanks so much. Hope to see you at my website. Bye. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Jeff, let's jump into some Star Trek talk now. And your first time working the franchise was in season one of Star Trek Discovery, the first of the new wave of Star Trek shows. So how did you come into that role? Well, I think like anyone, you know, producers were for a um for a composer and i happened to be in 
a place where I was having a conversation with one of the main executive producers who neither she nor I knew what the other one did. So we were sitting there having this conversation and she was like, so what do you, you know, what do you do? And I was like, I, you know, write music for film and television. She's like, Oh, you know, what have, what have you worked on? And I, you know, I'm sad. I've had done Fargo and had done something, um, an HBO miniseries called the night of, and, um, and we started talking about music and I said, so what, what are you doing? What do you do? And she said, well, I'm her and I produce television, produce films and, and, and stuff. And, and I'm actually working on the new incarnation of Star Trek. And I was like, oh, wow, that sounds so great. I've heard a lot about him, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she said to me, would you be interested in having a meeting with us about, about doing it? And I was like, you're kidding. Right. <laughs> and she said, no, that, I think it would be really great. Like it might be a really good fit. Why don't, why don't we, why don't I set up a meeting between you and, and the, um, the then producers. Uh, and um, I said, that would be great. And it was just one of those things where then six weeks went by, eight weeks went by, you know, a lot of time went by and no, no phone call, no nothing. And I was like, Oh, you know, they must've found somebody. Um, and then I got that call and they, you know, I got a call and said, Hey, you know, we'd love to, for you to come in and, and meet. And I, I did, I went in talked about like, talked about Star Trek and talked about what my thoughts and feelings were about what Star Trek music, modern Star Trek music could be or should be um, today and, uh, and, and how that would work in, in the context of this franchise. Um, and then she, they, you know, it was a great meeting. And then I walked, walked out of the meeting and um, again, eight weeks went by. 10 weeks went by, a lot of time went by. And I was like, oh, well, I guess they, they must have found someone else. Someone, you know, they must have found another composer. Uh, nobody had heard anything about anything. And then again, that phone call came like, hey, we'd love for you to, to do it. And it was, it was one of those moments where you're just like, wow, what? <laughs> you know, it's, but holding the phone and screaming. And it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was one of those, everything sort of, went into slow motion. Um, and that, I, that was really how I got involved um, with, uh, with the Star Trek fr franchise. And then, you know, getting involved with and getting close um, with Alex Kurtzman as he sort of directed the whole thing, spent that, the, the whole the half of that first season and all of season two, building a musical rapport and a musical ver vernacular with, with Alex, which has been really great um, because that, that makes that makes the job of of sort of writing music for it, um, you know, a lot easier. Now, I'm curious uh, how much impact or how much influence CBS, uh, Alex, and other showrunners had for the way they wanted the score to sound. Did they just kind of leave you to your task, or did they have a lot of input on what what ultimately how it sounded? I, I mean, you know, that first and second episodes, like you know, I, I I wrote I wrote the score for the first episode and sent it to Alex and to the other producers, and the the response I got was, "This is wonderful. You have found the sound." And then we sort of drilled down into um, what the you know what each individual cue that what they want for each individual cue and and sometimes it's a little bit more here a little bit less here we didn't really hit this can we bring it out and be a little bit more emotional here can it sound a little warmer here um and and that's really the back and forth but in terms of you know it was more um it was more about 
you know, trying to figure out what it was in those first two episodes, like trying to really find the sound of the, of the, um, of the show. Um, and the same thing happened in Picard, um, where it was just about trying to find that tone. And, you know, I, I stayed pretty close to what I initially talked to them about with that first episode. So it was, it made sense to me to do what I, what we had all talked about. And that was, you know, that was where we ended up. But does, did CBS, you know, CBS doesn't really have much in the way of, of saying anything directly to me about um, the music. You know, my, my uh, conversations about music um, are usually strictly between me and the showrunner. So for, for um, seasons one and two, it was mainly Alex and now it's Michelle um, for season three. And on um, Picard season one, it was mainly just Alex and Michael Chabon. Um, and, you know, in season two, it'll be Alex. And um, I'm not actually sure. I think it'll just be Alex, if I'm not mistaken. I think Michael has um, gone on to do something else. He'll continue as an executive producer. I, I'm actually unclear about that. I'm unsure about that. So the original Star Trek theme was made by Alexander Courage, and you were given a chance to be one of the few people in the world that has gotten the chance to make another official Star Trek show theme, which I imagine has got to be a daunting task. So how did you wrap your head around being asked to make the Star Trek Discovery theme song? And what did you do to separate this from not being an Alexander Courage spinoff, but into being a Jeff Russo original? Well, I can only write what I write, you know, so making it making it something that is me is something that i have no control over i'm i'm not really the type of writer that tries to sound like like else um and i think that inevitably that meant that whatever i wrote would be something different than what has come before it and that was terrifying to me you know, the terrifying part is to stand next to Alexander Courage and or Jerry Goldsmith, um, you know, in 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 terms of being someone who has written something that will um, that will represent the this part of the of of our of our world, this part of our of our um a franchise. Uh, so that was terrifying. You know, I sat at a piano and I was like, Oh, okay, this is going to work. And here's a nice melody. And then how will I work in the enterprise theme? You know, I really wanted to work in the enterprise theme at the end. And Alex was pretty clear. He was like, we definitely want to maybe add a little bit of it at the end. And it, to, to really just show where, where we are, you know, the, the idea of it was to show where we've been, um, and to show where we're going. So, and then to sort of tip our hat to the, the entire world of it. Um, and I had to construct it from, from that sort of viewpoint, you know, that, that was really important. So this is a question that can kind of really encompass all of the Star Trek shows you've worked on, but uh, I guess in particular, just to keep it a little bit more focused, I'm going to ask about season one of discovery. And to me, season one of discovery has five main driving forces in the show that would be starfleet klingons the mirror universe uh, the mycelial highway that stamets uses to navigate the ship and to a lesser extent the vulcans involvement in the show so I, I feel like it's five different languages you'd have to essentially cover with music so 
what do you do to find the different sounds for each of these things that are very distinct from one another? You know, for me, it wasn't about finding sounds. For me, it was about finding melodic elements that could, like when you, when, when something happens involving one of those five things, there would be a musical thing that happens that would then signal to the viewer, like, this is, this is this. Um, so there's definitely Klingon thematic material. There's definitely discovery thematic material. There's definitely mycelial network ma uh, material for me that was called the Black Alert theme. Um, and there, there were thematic moments um, for, for the entire series that can now into season three, you know, uh, because there are a lot of these same feelings. I mean, um, so it wasn't really a question of finding a sound. It was really a question of finding um, melodic moments and things that could be just used um, over and over because those things would happen again. You mentioned thematic elements here, and uh, I read an interview you did previously with, with uh, another journalist, and you talked about common tone and music theory and how you worked that into Star Trek. Is this kind of a similar thing? Um, I wouldn't say that this is a similar thing. I mean, I used, I utilized the common tone idea in the main theme. And, and I should add that, for folks like myself who aren't super musically inclined, uh, can you just, if you don't mind, just giving us a little uh, brief explanation of what common tone is? Well, so in the, in, in the context of our theme, it meant there was one note that was shared in the entirety of the chord progression. So um, in our theme, that note is F. Um, and that, that F note is shared in all of the chordal structure around which the melody is, is built. Um, so meaning that all of the chords that are played all share common one common note and that's that's the idea of a common tone um it's not always a, an exact science but that's the idea behind it um and in my mind that was sort of connected to you know um the universe and there being a commonality in all living beings in the universe and wanting wanting to show that and how that was going to manifest itself in music did i use that in in other aspects of the of the score no um i i didn't um it it appears in the discovery theme which does appear throughout the series because we're talking about we're talking about the the central idea of the show is the discovery um so there are moments when i just utilize that discovery theme to really ground us in in what the show is about uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Picard as well today, because, uh, you know, Picard has such a different sound to it, of course, uh, than Discovery does. I felt like Picard was a lot more intimate, uh, a lot more introspective, as opposed to how Discovery sounded. Um, so when you approached Picard, what was your thinking for that character and for the show as a whole? Well, so Picard is a much, um, it's a much smaller um, feeling. You know, it's definitely more subtle. Um, and it's definitely more of an emotional take on one person's journey as opposed to a broader big ensemble take where it's um, a feeling of the entirety of Starfleet on one mission or um, it, it, it or, or something a lot grander. So I needed it to feel more personalized. I needed it to feel more um, grounded to Picard's journey. Um, so I decided to use 
a lot more solo instruments against the backdrop of the orchestra as opposed to big orchestral moments with, you know, I mean, we have some action and those are, those are scored by some big orchestral moments, but from a general perspective, it, the score itself is a lot more personal. Um, and I think that that was the kind of story I think we were trying to tell. We're trying to tell uh, the story of one man and his journey um, and finding his own way. And as opposed to the journey of, of a crew, as opposed to the journey of, um, you know, a much bigger uh, a much bigger idea. And that was how I tried to approach. I, I tried to approach that in its theme. And I tried to ap- approach that in the, in the score as well, utilizing the thematic material as much as I could. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the opening theme because uh, I think that's one of the real Nestle Easter eggs that's in that theme is we've got Picard's tune from the inner light. And uh, was that your idea to put that in there? Are, are you talking about the flute at the end? Yeah. The flute part. So the flute part at the end was the idea for for flute in general in the theme obviously comes from the inner light. Um, As soon as I knew I was going to write the theme, I knew as soon as I knew I was going to write the theme and write the score for the show, I I thought, okay, I have to figure out how we're going to how I'm going to make this Resican flute um, happen, because I, I feel like that that experience for Picard was, was very impactful on his life. Um, and that's, that's just me saying that that's not me saying that that's what the writers have said. Um, I, I feel like that was a really important episode. I feel like that experience for him was really important. So I wanted to include that. Um, and I also was always going to somehow nod to Jerry Goldsmith's, um, you know, next generation theme or, actually the theme from the, the motion picture, which that original theme, that theme originates. Um, and so what better way to do it than to give to give that four note motif, you know, a flute uh, at the end of it. But if, if you, if you're really aware of the theme, what you realize is the beginning of the theme starts with flute as well. And I really wanted to bookend because it's really about where he's been, where he is, and where he will be, and where he's going. That that was the idea of of the um, of the theme for me. Like wanting to give a nod to the past, wanting to fully ground it in the present, and then give it a little bit of oh, and this is where we're going to be headed, um, and all the while making it as contemplative and emotional as I thought it was necessary because of his personality, Picard's personality. Yeah. I like that, how it is the theme for Picard in particular. It's not just for an entire Starfleet thing, which means it's not going to be a booming orchestra. It is very much a focus piece and it just sounds so unique from everything else in Star Trek music history. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a very different type of show than anything that has ever been done in Star Trek. So I, I, I felt that it was okay to sort of move us to a different style of writing for, um, for that particular theme. You know, there is an orchestral element and it does get swashbuckling. I wouldn't say swashbuckling. It gets rousing. It gets, it gets stirring. And that's the, that, that's the idea. The idea was to be emotionally stirring because that's what I think is invoked by, or evoked by um, Picard, at least to me. Now, spoiler alert, uh, 
if you haven't seen Starship Picard yet, here's a little bit of a spoiler, but uh, Data and Picard both die, essentially. At least, you know, one of them has more permanent death than the other. But, uh, you know, talk to me as a fan, Jeff, when you found out that Picard and Data are both going bye-bye in the show you're composing the score for, uh, how did you feel about that? Well, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I try to do to keep the ideas fresh for me is once I've read the first script, um, I try to I try to enjoy and experience the show as it is supposed to be enjoyed and experienced by um, by fans because I'm a fan as well. Um, so I knew basically where we were headed because at the very beginning of of the show, you know, Alex and I talked about. Um, uh, blue skies and how we were opening with blue skies and maybe we would close with blue skies, um, or have it be in the last episode. Um, and how would I go about doing that and incorporate that? And so I sort of had an idea as to what, where it was going to happen, what was going to happen. Um, but I didn't really know until I saw it, um, until I saw it and then had to sit down and write it. Like that was basically in the same day. Um, so it was an emotional, it was an emotional moment for me. It was definitely an emotional moment for me to, to be sitting there and writing the piece of music that would signify the end of a character that has been in, in the series for as long as any character has ever been in, in the, in a Star Trek series. Um, and it was, it was quite an emotional moment to be sitting there and writing it. And I, I, you know, I'll be totally honest, like in that moment of writing that piece of music, there were moments where I teared up, you know, and not because it was so sad, but because it welled up so many emotions on so many levels from, for me, because I've been so invested in the idea of Star Trek and again, began with Star Trek, the next generation. And so it brought up feelings of my, you know, my, my, late teens and early twenties. And it brought up a lot of nostalgia for me. So, um, I did get quite caught up in it. Um, but I wasn't terribly surprised. And for anybody out there who didn't have a little bit of a wet eye after watching data go off into his next plan of existence, I question your humanity entirely. <laughs> right. So Jeff, now we're jumping ahead to discovery season three, which at this point, it's now definitely a few episodes in from when we are doing this conversation here. You know, really, this is probably one of the more unique ones I imagine that you had to work on because thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you had to face one of your biggest hurdles ever, which is that you can't be in the same room recording something together with an entire orchestra. Uh, so can you tell us a, a little bit about how the process had changed for making discovery season three? Well, you know, I, I will say now, um, we are back to recording at least some of the players in a, in a room together um, under very, very strict protocols. Um, but for the longest time, we had to be recording all of the instruments separately. Um, so all 40 some odd players would be individually recording their parts in their homes and then sending them to me and my team. And we would be editing them and putting them together to make them sound like they were all in one room. It's the very complex, um, very complex uh, way of doing it. Um, it sounds, it sounds on its face. Maybe it sounds easy, but it's not um, because there's a sound that happens when there are 
40 musicians in a room um, all in one place and what, what it does to the sound in the room and microphones and all that kind of stuff. So um, uh, being able to replicate that sound with everybody using a different microphone in a different room and different instruments. And it, it's, it got very complicated, but we were able to manage to make it work. Um, and it's, uh, it's a testament everybody on on the music team it's uh all of our our dedication to to getting it done i i could never have have mounted this type of um this type of score without you know the all the people involved um with recording and editing and mixing and and orchestrating and and everything it's um it's definitely been a team effort and definitely taken a a village and a half to make um this particular season score happen What's interesting about this season is that we're essentially in the future within the future. Uh, so we've got Michael Burnham off alone. We're now way beyond the timeline we're used to seeing in Star Trek. It's a whole new era, essentially. Uh, so when you're approaching this kind of thing, it really is like a new frontier. What do you do to make music for something that's really been a part of Star Trek that's never been explored before? Well, you know, I think it's for me, it's just been a question of feeling out what the what the thematic material will be i mean we didn't want to change the sound of the score simply because we were a thousand years in the future because why would that happen you know like we're we're it's the, the narrative is is um the same it's not the same narrative but the idea is we have this group of people and they are you know they are existing in a, in a world that they've never seen before, never been. And a lot of what Star Trek is, is a, a an exploration show and um, a show that explores the idea of the new frontier. So this is the ultimate in the new frontier. And that, that didn't seem to be all that different to me. So I needed to figure out what next version of the themes would be what the next version of the ideas of motifs for characters but there are a lot of the same issues that happened in season one and season two in season three so why would i why would i try to fix something or change something that was working um there there is some new sounds there are some new themes um but generally speaking i would say it's still we're still in the world of star trek discovery so our listeners are gonna have to wait to hear more of that i'm very excited to hear what's going to happen in terms of the music for star trek discovery season three because yeah this is going to be a heck of a ride um mm -hmm. so outside of star trek what's a piece of music that you've composed for film or television that you're most proud of and you think trek fans would want to hear also you know i i i'm always reluctant to answer a question like that because I don't know that I have a favorite piece of music that I've ever written. Well, maybe um, I'll, I'll amend the question. I'll put it not as much favorite, but a piece that you thought was a big challenge that you overcame, that you're proud of overcoming that hurdle. There were a number of pieces in Star Trek. There are a number of pieces in Fargo. You know, there are a number of pieces that I've written over the years that have been complex challenges because I'd never tried to write anything like it before. Um, there was a piece in Fargo season two called Herman's Malt that is, um, you know, a tip of the hat um, to, uh, to Mahler's second, um, which I deliberately did and wanted to do. And it was an interesting, it was an interesting 
conundrum for me because I'd never done anything like that before. Um, so that was that's something that you know posed a, a big challenge for me that I, I wanted to try to overcome. Um, you know, I think I think that would be yeah that that's probably one that is very interesting to me. Um, you know the 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 theme for Picard also was, was challenging for me um, on a lot of different levels, narratively, musically, wanting to get it right in a way that I was very scared that I wouldn't. Um, And um, so that, that also posed a a sort of really big challenge, not as much musically because it wasn't something that I'd never done before, but it was, there was a lot to live up to there. Um, And that, that was um, quite terrifying. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like, I I feel like that going into any new project, it's, it's always terrifying. It's always like, wow, what if I fail? Um, And what does failure look like? You know, what does success look like in, in terms of getting it right? Like I, it's also subjective. You know, I, I always look back on things and going and go, Oh, I could have done that better. I could have done that more like this. I could have done this. Like maybe I should have not played that there, but like waited. And you know what I mean? Like I always sort of look at things like um, I, I, I hindsight's always 2020 is what, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so there's so many pieces of music that I would look back on and go, Oh, that was complicated. I could have done that better. I could have done this a little differently. Um, anyway, I don't know if that answers the question. I think so. And it kind of brings up another thought to mind where I've, I've noticed uh, a lot of visual artists, let's say who will make paintings, they'll do work. And as they're, as they go on, as they become more intelligent and, and better uh, understanding their artistic language, if you will, uh, you know, things ultimately tend to become more simplified and simplified, not being a negative, but they strip away the unnecessary elements that they don't need for a piece to make it be understood in a better way uh, more quickly. Do you feel like that might be the same for your music or music in general? Is it about stripping away those unnecessary elements to get to the core of what the piece is about? You know, a really good friend of mine a long, long time ago gave me a piece of advice. And that advice was write, 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 keep writing, write, 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 write some more, write some more, and then ruthlessly edit. And I've really taken that to heart with how I go about writing material. I write a lot and then I sort of go back to it and start stripping stuff away. That's, that's been how I like to really find the, the true heart of a piece of music. Like the heart doesn't necessarily reveal itself until I've layered it up and then gone back and stripped things away. So yeah, I would say that that's very much, very much so that. So before we conclude this chat today, I do have one other show I'd like to ask you about. Uh, that's because it's a favorite of mine. Uh, and you worked on Umbrella Academy for Netflix. Uh, and I just binged the entire series not that long ago. I've become a pretty big fan of it. So, you know, we're, we're talking about going from Starfleet to a dysfunctional family with superpowers. And uh, but really, my question about the score is more so if you got to meet Gerard Way at all. I know there's some MCR fans who are listening today. Uh, did you get to interact with Gerard Way? And did he have any input on the sound of the Umbrella Academy? So um, I did meet with Gerard before season one. Um, I didn't really see him or speak to him about the music in season two. Um, he he didn't have anything to say about the score. He you know he had performed on and I think wrote a song 
for um, this season and performed on a song in season one. Um, but we did talk about what the score was going to be at the very beginning before they started shooting. Um, when I was first talking to Steve Blackman, who's the the showrunner of that show. Um, but I, we, we did meet and we did talk and got along great. He's a really, really great guy. And, you know, I, I knew of him back from when my band was on tour and his band was on tour, ah. you know, we, we, we never truly crossed paths at that point, but of course I, you know, we knew, we knew each other, like who each other's, who each other were. So Jeff, last question for today. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? I, I mean, you know, being a part of the Star Trek universe has been something that I feel like I have already been my entire life because of uh, being a fan of the, of the whole thing. Um, you know, getting to write music for this franchise has been a dream come true. You know, again, not a dream that I had specifically, but to be involved in something that I have loved for so long is, um, has been something that is, incredible and I, I i still pinch myself um that i that i'm that i do it because i'm such a fan and i watch the shows as a fan and i'm in invested in the characters as a fan as well as someone developing those characters and developing the the sound of the show and the music of the show so you know it, it's just something that's basically indescribable you know that that feeling is not something that happens a lot so it's it's uh it's just pretty incredible all right. Well, it's, it's great to hear the story of, again, a fan going from just being a fan to becoming involved in the franchise. I love hearing stories like that. And, mm. uh, you know, thank you so much, Jeff, for chatting with us today, giving us your time and filling us in a, a little bit about your process, what you do. I'm hoping the listeners have gleaned a lot of good information out of this. As for myself, I'm not the most musical person, but I love speaking to artists like you. Uh, so you know, I imagine for you, this is probably like Jake Elwood talking to Beethoven. But, uh, you know, it's been a great experience. <laughs> and and I, you know, I love hearing just how passionate you are and how enthusiastic you are about what you do. Oh, thank you very much. I look forward to hearing more of your work in future Trek shows. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for the chats. They really appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you very soon. That was our chat with Jeff Russo, who was truly amazing to speak with. And as an aside, normally I have to edit us and omas from our guests, although I try to do it sparingly. With Jeff, I don't think I had to make too many cuts at all in this episode, except for my own bumbling mouth. That's the sign of a person who has confidence in their abilities and in what they want to say. And typically the sign of a human who's on a whole other wavelength when it comes to intellect. This was a fun one for me to try and find ways to challenge him with my limited musical vocabulary, and I feel like I learned not just a lot about Jeff today, but the work he does to create the harmonies of this modern incarnation of Star Trek, and again, what a composer does. Jeff is the second composer that I've spoken to on this podcast, the first being Gerald Freed, who worked on the original series. And what's curious to me is hearing about the different approaches they have to how they perceive music and what it does. There's a lot of similarities, but just like any form of art, there's always going to be differences too. And maybe it's something that my ears could perceive, but it's something that my brain couldn't quite put together. But thanks to Gerald and now Jeff, I think I'm starting to get a better understanding of, well, essentially, how music works. And that might sound like a kind of odd thing to say here, but again, with my musical background being essentially one high school year of guitar playing and a few semesters of playing the recorder in grammar school, I think you can kind of understand where I'm coming from in this case. The original Star Trek theme was written by Alexander Courage, as we mentioned earlier in this episode. But did you know the song actually has lyrics? Yes, Gene Roddenberry wrote an entire song based on Alexander's song, and not because he wanted them to be sung on television, but because Gene wanted to claim half of the royalties from the song. 
Now, as for those lyrics, they're pretty terrible, and I'm not going to be singing them anytime soon. And if they'd ever been part of the opening theme, I don't think it would be quite as iconic as it's become today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget, you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. Check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Trek Untold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this on the audio form or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that, and we also thank you for again choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity at Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, this has been Trek Untold, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.